This is Secrets to Win Big, your roadmap to sustained growth. Brought to you by Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, top brand growth driver and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. Find him at zenmango.com. And now, here's your host, Arjun Sen. Hi, welcome to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. This is Arjun. And in every conversation, I have the best seat in the house because I get a chance to talk to incredible leaders from all walks of life all over the world who want and strive to win big. Winning big is very important because winning is fun, but but winning big puts us all on the path to sustained long-term wins. In that spirit, it truly a pleasure and an honor to welcome my VIP guest, Paige Arna Fenn today. She is the founder and CEO of a global marketing and digital branding firm, Mavens and Moguls, based out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Her clients include Microsoft, Virgin, the New York Times company, Colgate, and venture-backed startups, as well as nonprofit organizations. And it was not just the big names, but the diversity of clients really got me excited because there's something common between all these brands, which only Paige sees. (laughs) And I really want to learn about that. Paige also serves on several boards and is very popular speaker and columnist who has written for Entrepreneur and Forbes magazine. Paige, welcome to Secrets to Win Big. Arjun, thank you so much for having me. So Paige, let me ask you the question I really wanted to know personally when I went through your bio, that you have worked with amazing brands. And of course, there has to be other brands too, which is not in the bio that I just read. What are common areas every brand needs to address as you start working with them? So the common denominator, I think, of great brands is that they really know their audience. They've done their homework. They've done the market research. They know what their benefits are. They know what's important to their target audience. And they've carved out a niche that's authentic to them. So the message really resonates in a way that they have a strong connection with their customer. And I think when that combination happens, it's magic. You know, the world, I worked at Procter & Gamble and Coca-Cola earlier in my career. And P&G and Coke have world-class brands. Every category P&G competes in whether it's diapers, toilet paper, makeup, shampoo, detergent, toothpaste, they are the leader in every category. Coca-Cola is the most recognized brand all over the world. It's sold in maybe 200 countries around the world. That logo is, you know, recognized as much as any logo ever. And what I think they really do well is they're not trying to imitate other brands. They own their message. They they really get what matters, why it matters, when it matters, how it matters. They get the basics right and they do it well every single day in every country around the world. So they're not trying to be a, an imitation of something else. They're a strong version of their own brand and they just keep beating it home every day consistently with the right message to the right audience at the right time. As you are sharing this, you know, the light bulbs went on for me 
because Coke has this formidable competition who every few years reinvents their logo. They're always at the Super Bowl. Like it's the flashiest competition you can ever find. But in that world, to stay true is such a powerful brand. And if you remember Coke's logo, uh, their tagline used to be the real thing. Mm-hmm. And that still rings true today. It's not still the tagline, but it's consistent with how the brand has evolved. And I think you make an excellent point. You know, everybody thinks of Coke's big competitor as being Pepsi. Well, Pepsi is a big competitor, but they're competing with a lot of different beverages and whatever the new, new thing is. But they're also competing with other categories and brands and things because, you know, having Coke, sitting down and having a Coke with your friends you're competing with somebody's disposable income and their disposable time. So they're choosing to meet friends and share a Coke Mm. versus going to a movie, playing tennis, doing other activities. And when I worked at Coca-Cola in the 90s, we did a lot of market research with our customers all over the world. And we were in Eastern Europe. I forget what country we were in. And we were trying to get to the essence of like, who is our competition in this market? Because a lot of local markets have brands that, you know, are not the same, obviously, in this country or other countries. Mm-hmm. And what we learned, so, you know, Coke, the, the key audience, that the coveted audience that a lot of brands go after is like 18 to 25, like that young consumer, because you want to get them and form their habits so that they stick with you you know, their entire adult life. And when we talk to these young people about, you know, having a Coke after work or, you know, when, when do they do it? Where do they do it? Who do they do it with? What we learned was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Our competition in that market wasn't beverages at all. What young people told us was when I'm sitting at my desk at work and my friends want to get together and we agree we're going to meet at a local cafe or bar or pub, and I know I want to have a Coke, I know how much that costs, and I know how much money's in my pocket. And what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to walk to the pub instead of taking public transportation. So the bus fare or the subway fare is the competition in some markets because the money they're spending to sit and have a Coke and hang out with their friends is the money they would have used to commute home. So, you know, you have to think of your competition, I think, very broadly, and especially today, where there's so many things vying for your time. Just being on someone's radar, that's a brand they want to spend any time with at all. They've got, you know, streaming, they've got video games, they've got athletic activities, all kinds of things. That, they're, that you're competing with their brain to get on their radar so that they spend time with your brand. I love that because to me, it's not the direct replacement product that is the competition. It is what else the person could have done because it's the competition is the time. What else could have done? I love the situation. Absolutely. I think that is a major insight that you're competing with anything that takes their time. 
And the, the truth is time is the most important commodity we all have. People think about money. Money comes, money goes. You know, sometimes you have a lot of money, sometimes you don't. But time only goes one direction. So once that time is lost, you can't go back and get anything. So you have to have a message that's so compelling, that's so spot on to your target audience, that every time that your product or service is one they should be considering that they think of you first. And also, when you talk about time, that's the wealth both of us, you and I, have the exact same amount, 24 hours. You got it. I want to go back to something you said, is the successful brands start with knowing their customers. And you and I, with our families, when we travel, we never start traveling in today's world with GPS without putting the destination in. Like when we don't do that, how come quite a few brands do not know their customer? Like what are some common traps brands fall in where they're comfortable running a business without knowing? Like, can you just help the audience with some symptoms of the problem that you do not know the customer? Yes. So I'll tell you a very common example of a problem I've seen firsthand in a lot of situations with clients and with people that come to ask me for help. They'll come to me and say, I have this great idea. I have this great product, this fantastic service. Everyone tells me it's terrific. They love it. And I launched and no one's buying it. But I don't understand because everyone tells me it's great. What's my problem? Do I need better marketing, better advertising? And the first question I ask is, who did you talk to? And in this situation, it's incredibly common for people to say, I asked my mom, my neighbor, my friend, you know, my cousin. The problem is you can't do market research with people who are not part of your target audience, and especially not with your friends and family. Because friends and family are never going to tell you something that they hurt, that they think might hurt your feelings. They're not the people that are going to tell you your baby's ugly. They want you to feel good. They want you to be happy and they don't want to upset you. So market research is talking to your target audience and then the gatekeepers who affect the decision that are part of the decision chain. And you need to know what those primary, secondary and tertiary audiences, how they think, how they feel what benefits they care about, what is their decision criteria, and ask them. And they may not say everything's great or perfect. And don't, another kind of problem is when you're getting negative feedback, people kind of shut down or discount it or say they didn't really understand it. But maybe you're not explaining it clearly enough, or maybe the benefits that you think matter to them are not the ones that matter the most on their end. And another common problem is people focus on the features and not the benefits. You know, customers, it's nice to have lots of shiny objects, but at the end of the day, what's in it for me? Why do I care? How are you making my life easier, more fun, more entertaining? Are you educating me? Are you saving me time? Are you saving me money? Talk about the benefits. I don't need all the flashy signs and 
bells and whistles until I understand how your product or service is going to benefit me. So I think, you know, if you really want to do the right thing, do market research with the right audience. Don't trust your friends and family for honest feedback. And make sure you're very aware of the customer benefit, the end benefit to the end user. And don't get fall in love with all your fancy features before you know what it is that kind of gets them to pull the trigger to buy. As I'm listening to you, there are three thoughts come to my mind. Is one, sometimes organizations have this hierarchy where the person with more stars or more stripes thinks he or she is the customer. And when I was working for Einstein Brothers Bagels, and we had an amazing consumer research team, and as the team was going through all the diligence of target audience, what product we bring in, you know, turf analysis, every possible thing, our incredible CEO walked in, he tasted bagel A, B, C, D, E, and says A, N, B, C, D, out, E, N, F, out, G, N. I told her, sir, can I hire you for a million dollars, please? He said, what do you mean? He said, sir, if you had a taste palate, one person can project this. I can hire you for a million dollars. I can raise the money. And this will be an amazing business. Okay? Like then I had to sit with him and explain to him that he is not my target. Like seriously, he makes too much money. It was personally a CLM career limiting move for me. So that is one. Okay. Second, I have seen organizations will spend obscene amount of money but I think that's the point you talked about was not be open to customers. Like in focus groups, when the customer says they had a bad experience, they would say that person is lying. Okay. And to me, that is so incredibly important to be open because customers pay us. And the third and the most important when we're talking about features and benefits is many a time, customer, when you ask the wrong questions, gets very excited about something flashy. It's just like, you know, when Sharper Image was in the still in the mall, I went and sat in those amazing massage chairs so many times. But my wife knows that I never even wanted to buy those. Like, forget about thinking. Like, there was no thinking, no want, no desire. But based on my excitement, if Sharper Image felt how many people are standing in line to sit those chairs, that these are amazing chairs. There are other reasons these are good chairs, but the wrong kind of a stimulus, because you know, I love that whole thing about what you talked about is separating the features and the benefits. And recently I moved from Denver to Houston. And during moves, you find strange things. I found a user manual for a VHS tape player. And I counted this, that a VHS tape player could do even those days close to 180 things. You could record by day, by time. You could set, like you could do bizarre things. And I kept thinking, wow, I only those days used two of the features like record and play. That's it. And whoever built these things, built all these complicated things without understanding the customer needs. So I really love this area as you're talking about it. I want to go a little bit to Nonprofits, and I also want, want to look at startups. Let's talk with uh, nonprofits first. Okay, otherwise, I could tell you a funny story about focus. No, no, groups. I want to know the story first. Now, you cannot okay. tell me, I want you have a story the, I'm not sharing. The focus group story is kind of funny because I completely agree with you. With market research, if you ask the question poorly, it's garbage in, garbage out. You know, we see a lot of situations where 
it's almost like leading the witness, you know, tell me what you love about this product or, you know, how great, you know, when you set it up, like, of course, you've set it up for them to tell you good feedback. They're going to give you good feedback. But I, when I was at Procter & Gamble, one of the brands um, I managed was CoverGirl Cosmetics, which they owned at the time. And we would do lots of market research, quantitative and qualitative. But they love focus groups at Procter & Gamble. We always did focus groups. And so I, teenage girls wear a lot of CoverGirl makeup. So I would have these rooms filled with teenage girls and I'd bring all the latest makeup and I'd put it on the table, the nail polish, the lipstick. And we'd talk about their makeup habits. What do they like to wear? What colors? Do they like it to be shiny or not shiny? Do they like sparkles or no sparkles? And in every focus group, there's always one person who's kind of like the loudest voice in the room. Mm -hmm. and, and especially with teenage girls, if it's a popular girl that everybody kind of looks at, you know, fondly, she's very um, convincing. So if she thinks something's great, everybody wants to make it great. Oh, I think so, too. I agree with her. So for two hours, they ate pizza, drank Coca-Cola and played with makeup and they were putting it on. Anyway, I knew every piece of makeup that was on the table. Mm -hmm. The focus group ends and we, we heard their feedback. I like this color. I like it sparkly. The focus group ends. The room is empty. About 20% of the makeup is no longer on the table. I go back to my list and I looked. And even though many of them said they didn't like this shade or they didn't like that style, those were the ones they took home with them. They slipped them in their pockets or their purses. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones they wanted to keep. So when my boss said, how did the focus group go? I said, here's the, you know, I'll give you the transcript, but it's trash because everything they said was counter to everything they stole. And all I cared about were, were the trends of what are the things Actions. that we want. Actions, yeah. And to me, I have done a lot of focus groups, but then one day I woke up and asked myself, when was the last time I met nine other strangers and shared truly my honest feelings? Like seriously, right now, if you and I were having a conversation with eight other strangers, you know, to for some of us, it matters what others think. Absolutely. Because then some of us may be telling the truth, but rest could be saying what makes them look good among that group. They want to look smart. They want to look I may cool. like to be the different guy. Okay. And the bizarre thing is none of us know what role that person is playing. So I really feel it's not about doing research. I think I'm so glad it was not something I planned to talk about, but you brought this up. It's beautiful is purposeful research done right, where you're getting that incredible thought that you had was, if you get a chance to see actual behavior, and I'm going to quote you, rest is trash because behavior vetoes. Well, it's interesting. We did another anthropological research on CoverGirl where these women let us meet them in their bathrooms in the morning. We showed up at their house at like six in the morning and we told them, you can't do anything before, like you can throw on your bathrobe, 
and meet us at the door. And we, we just want to watch you on your routine with your makeup and your beauty care. And we watched their whole routine. And it was so interesting because there were certain products, they like soaps that they were using that they left on their skin. And we said, you know, usually when like when you shower, you soap up and you immediately rinse or you're washing your face, you immediately soap it up and wash. And they said, no, but this is a moisturizing soap and I want the moisturizer to Hmm. soak in. Or, you know, it's just very interesting when they read the labeling or they read the packaging and you make certain claims, how they interpret those claims and how it affects their habits and practices. You could never come up with some of this stuff. The only reason we knew how they used it, why they used it is because we watched them use it. And that power of observation is very important. But now I'm going to say something which is going to this is a major insight about you. Are you ready? <laughs> okay. So to me, this was the proof of branding. You are a diehard Coca-Cola fan. <laughs> because when you talked about CoverGirl, you talked about the focus group, you talked about pizza, you didn't even bring a brand in. And you didn't say soda, you said Coca-Cola. That to me is the brand insistence that a brand create is created one person at a time. When Paige talks about a random, not a random, a story in which she puts a random pizza in, but when it's talking about the beverage, she brings her Coca-Cola in the real thing. Now that is branding. I could not resist that. I had to bring that in. And also you're wearing red. I don't think it's a chance. So there is something subliminal that's going on. Hey, I love that. <laughs> Coca-Cola guys, we love you. Okay. So now let's move to startups. Yes. So what is like, if right now, if you had a megaphone and you can talk to every startup about their brand, what would be one thing only you'll tell them to work on, please? Wow. There's so much to work on. I think the most important thing, one of the most important things I think we learned over the last 16 months with the pandemic is If you're not getting your message across online, you're dead. You have to be visible online because being invisible is a terrible strategy. Mm -hmm. Online marketing, digital marketing is marketing today. Mm -hmm. And most people are accessing everything through their handheld device. So if your website is not optimized for mobile first or mobile only, if you don't have voice search, everything needs to be the number one priority today is your digital presence and your digital strategy. Because Love that. Absolutely. I, I think that is the, the key takeaway. You really don't have a choice today. We're all um we're all living in a in a new normal. And even brick and mortar businesses, I think this hybrid model in every aspect of our life, our work life is going to be hybrid. I think our retail life is going to be hybrid, but you always have to factor in how you look online and what the breadcrumbs are 
you know, it's so interesting right now with online shopping. We've learned a lot about people's habits and practices. And you might have heard of a trend called omni-channel because when people are shopping now, sometimes they're on their phones, sometimes they're on a desktop, sometimes they're on a tablet. It doesn't matter which platform they use. Mm -hmm. You need to connect all of those together. So if you put something in your shopping cart, when you're shopping on your phone, it should still be there when you're on your desktop at your office, if you decide to shop there. Yeah, because I'm not starting. I'm not starting all over again. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. And if it's a retailer that you like used to buy other things, like say it's clothing and you bought a pair of pants there, they should make sure and offer you a great shirt or a sweater while you're shopping and say, you know, we know you want to buy these things in your cart but this would go great with those khaki pants. Mm -hmm. So you really want an omni-channel experience in everything that you do. You want people to know you for you, what your kind of breadcrumbs are, because like you said, you're not going to start over and you're going to miss that opportunity if you don't connect all the dots. So having a digital presence and having a strong digital relationship today means everything. I also will bring back two things you said earlier is one, know your customers. And when you do consumer research, don't do any research unless you can do it right. Asking the wrong person, those are two amazing insights you had earlier. I want to bring it back. So now let's move to nonprofits. With nonprofits, what would be your one piece of wisdom that everybody should look at when they start a nonprofit or when they're trying to take it to the next level? So the wonderful thing about nonprofits is they're mission-driven, purpose-driven, almost by definition. It's a cause that people join and believe in. You know, there's a lot of talk today in marketing about purpose-driven brands and trying to get people, you know, emotionally connected. Nonprofits almost do that naturally. So if you're not connecting with your audience on an emotional level, especially because nonprofits usually don't have the budgets that for-profit companies have. You need to find those emotional connections, those emotional hot buttons, and make sure that it's a thread throughout every touch point on your website, in any material, uh, any audio things you're doing, thought leadership, any content you're putting out there connect the dots. You have to be very consistent Mm because everything needs to be connected and resonate so that they all reinforce each other. But always be led by your purpose and your mission because that's what people connect to with nonprofits. I love that. So let's go back to media. And I'm going to put in front of you a personal challenge of mine. I just feel I'm in brand therapy. Like to me, you are incredibly wise and I have to ask you this question. (laughs) Now, we all know it's all about social media. You have to put content out there. I put a lot of content out there and I get decent amount of views, likes, blah, blah, blah. But when I reflect back, it's the same people who are liking me. These are literally an extension of family. They love me. And Usually, I found people who really love you, they see you as Arjun, the human being, 
they usually don't bring business to you. Okay. So how can I get beyond this and not worry about views and get to that one person who needs me and is ready to pay me an obscene amount of money for the value I bring? So what is the strategy? Like, what can I do mentally to get out of this? And I'm going to shut up and listen to you. So the challenge with technology and social media in particular is it's always on 24-7 and it will suck you dry if you let it. I know people who are constantly tweeting and updating their Facebook and updating their status on LinkedIn. I always tell people, pick your platform, figure out what's the most authentic to you, and you can pick one or maybe two things. And you need to do them really, really well and be very consistent in everything that you're doing so that your brand resonates in a very deep way. You know, I know people who on Facebook, they try to be kind of funny or, you know, warm and fuzzy and they have pictures of their family and their pets. And then on Twitter, they try to be very snarky because they think that's what gets more tweets and retweets. On LinkedIn, they're trying to be very buttoned up and professional. I don't really think you can do that. I think, you know, in the world we live in today, people are seeing everything. So you, you kind of have to own some real estate that's yours and you have to reinforce it in everything that you do. And, you know, for me, that platform is LinkedIn. It's a professional platform. And, you know, the amount of content you put out there is incredible. And you're everywhere. I agree. You're on YouTube. You're on LinkedIn. You're everywhere. I mean, I think I would pick the thing that you most enjoy doing and then beat it to death. Do it, you know, do it in every way you can and always come back to home base. You know, everything, if, if YouTube is your, your choice, then put it out there and do everything consistently every day. For me, LinkedIn, everything goes through LinkedIn. I'm not on a lot of the other things because I don't want to get spread too thin and kind of be, I think people dilute their brand when they do just a little bit in a lot of places, but you know, it's hard. It's human nature. You want to see the likes. You want people to give you the thumbs up. But, you know, another thing you could try and do is find your most successful connections that you've made through social media and do a postmortem on those. So let's go backwards. How did that person find you? What was it that initially brought them in? And then follow those breadcrumbs to see what it was, and then see if you can replicate that to create more people like that. Because you may find that there's a gateway that maybe it's when people meet you personally, when we're back doing conferences in person again. Maybe it's this series. Maybe this is the thing that has been the hook where your most profitable business has come from. Maybe it's YouTube. I don't know what it is, but you have to kind of like go through your Google Analytics, go through, you know, go through your data, follow the breadcrumbs. And when you see 
you know, you need to replicate your very best, most profitable customers. And however you found them, do more of that, even if it feels good to, you know, send out a weekly newsletter or, you know, offer um, some promotion, that may just be a distraction and noise. You might not be getting any business through that, but you have to follow the data. You know, the data doesn't lie. I think this part we should take out of the podcast and put it on a pay-per-view or something. Like seriously, I'm telling you, this is gold and I'm tempted. But on a serious note, there are four things I'm taking away from this conversation. And this is a personally thank you for these gifts. Number one, choose a medium. Number two, do one thing that you like, you love, and only you. Number three, stop spreading yourself thin. Remove the others to zero. And number four, which I really, really like, was be the authentic you. Don't change yourself based on what you think Instagram needs. And I just remember when my daughter was 15, she and our friends were having a sleepover. I was designated to bring pizza. I brought the pizza in. And I thought by bringing pizza, I could have a line in, you know, I just wanted a line in that movie. I said, dudes, dudettes, how are you? She took me aside by saying, dad, we can use dudes. There's no dudette. You're trying to make politically correct. There's nothing called that. And when a 48-year-old man uses the word dude, it doesn't look good, dad. You don't even know where I got it. Okay. So to me, this was absolutely incredible. So now we are going to switch gears. And this last section, I call that rapid fire. I'll ask you multiple questions. I just need one line answers from you. Are you ready? I'll try and stick to one line, but I can be a little chatty. You'll do great. So number one is, what is the skill that you have where you see things in any situation that others don't? What's the skill that I have? How do you do that? Like, how do you see what others don't? I mean, I think I'm very perceptive. And I love connecting the dots in unique ways. It's just the way that I'm wired. And you have to keep your head up in life. When you walk down the street, if your nose is in your phone, you're missing everything around you. You have to look with your eyes, listen with your ears, smell with your nose, breathe in, taste the street treats. You have to use all five of your senses. Don't bury your head in the sand and be sitting with your nose in your phone because you're missing out on all the stimulation. And there's no way you can connect the dots if you're not taking in everything around you. What has been one of the biggest inspirational moments in your life? Could be a person, a situation that changed you. Oh, my goodness. Um, I get inspired all the time by amazing people, beautiful scenery, travel, a great meal, a delicious wine. I get inspiration from so many people, places, things. There's no way I could pick one. I mean, you know, it's funny as a business owner, entrepreneur, it's like my business friends are my work friends or my real friends. Like the whole world kind of converged. Mavens and Moguls to me is not just a company. It's like a platform. And 
it's where all the roads of my life have converged. So my clients become friends, my friends become colleagues, my colleagues become clients. So I get inspired constantly. Love that. Next is, you know, for me, the whole vision of the conversation is about win big. What does win big mean to you in your world? So it's changed, I think, in my life because if you had asked me that when I was in college or business school, I think my answer would have been financial. Winning big would be, you know, getting a big account, getting a big paycheck, getting a big bonus. And my definition of success has changed a lot. You know, now I'm in my 50s. So, you know, winning big now, to me, it's more of a holistic answer, maybe. It's, you know, the right people, the right place, the right time. Having a career and a platform that I love, that I get to do work I really enjoy, that people are willing to pay me well to do for them and gives me the time to spend with the people that I love most in the world. That's winning big for me right now. Could I make more money? Sure. But that wouldn't make it better for me. That's not sufficient. Yeah, got it. So the next one is, if you could go back in time and meet Paige, 16-year-old, amazing kiddo graduating from high school, what would be one advice? Like that kid cannot take more than one advice. One advice you can give that kid. Oh boy, be patient and don't set arbitrary goals for yourself. Like I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to conquer the world and be the first, the best, the biggest, the fastest, the youngest. And, you know, it's not really about getting all the awards and accolades. It's like, enjoy, enjoy the journey, like enjoy all the detours and the path you take. And don't be in such a rush to get somewhere because the process is really what what it's all about. It's not about getting to some future state. It's about learning and enjoying things along the way to make you better. So now I'm just going to take you to a birthday party. Is the 100th birthday party of Paige what would be one thing you want to ask Paige, who just turned 100 today and is celebrating with amazing friends and family and has the biggest smile on her face? Oh, my goodness. What would I ask her? Boy, oh, boy. I mean, I don't believe in regret. I don't believe in, you know, I, I don't think you should look back and feel like, you know, sad about things. I guess I would say what's made you happiest in your life. I mean, I would I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just more about happiness. And you know, what I like about that answer is many a time, just like we talked about focus group, people say things, make them look good. But this was so consistent with your answers about what you shared about your win big to everything. And I really feel that that consistency in a thought makes it awesome. That takes me to one of my last questions is I find somebody like you to be successful, there has to be a process. Randomness does not make people successful. You know, if I want money from a lottery, that's not the way to get rich. So is there a ritual that you have for your work day when you start your day and when you're wrapping up your day that you're comfortable sharing? So for me, it's about doing your homework. You know, always try and be the best prepared for everything, every meeting, every speech, every everything. 
because when you've done your homework and you keep your head up, you're able to see trends or connect the dots in ways when you're on a trip. You know, you can have what I call planned spontaneity. You may think you're going to Florence to go see the Duomo, but it just happens to be a beautiful day and you find yourself in this area of Florence. And because you did your homework, you can just spontaneously do this little detour and then go to the Duomo that'll make this the absolute perfect day. But had you not have done your homework, you wouldn't have been able to recognize that opportunity when you found yourself in the neighborhood that has the perfect cappuccino or the perfect, you know, biscotti or something, you know. And so I would just say there are no shortcuts in life, but there are a hell of a lot of detours. But if you do your homework, the detours may be even better than some of the places you think you want to go. When you talked about Florence and the Domo, an amazing memory comes to my mind is my daughter was doing one of her study abroads in Florence, and I went to visit her. And when we were visiting, you know, and the students there, NYU has bought a lot of apartments there and three to four kids live in each one. And all the other apartments were like five-star apartments, like big screen TV, this, that, everything. And my daughter was in one of these tiny places with two rooms, with three kids there. And me being that dad, I just said, girl, you know, you could have stayed in one of these other places. And she said, dad, smack yourself on your forehead. I'm like, okay, dad, you don't come to Florence to live in a nice apartment. I am half a block from Domo. That's the reason you come to Florence. And that's the time what I realized was when somebody knows the true value of things in life at that instant, that became priceless. Of course, you know, uh, that trip also, I realized going with her to coffee shops that if you sit and have coffee, it costs you more. So I just couldn't believe like, you know, it, she would get the coffee and get me out. I wanted to hang out there. And she said, no, dad, we don't have the money to sit there. So it was another like lot of fun. You raised a smart daughter. I love that. Absolutely. I studied in my junior year in college in Florence as well. She made the right call. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. So finally, this is such an amazing conversation. Is there anything we haven't talked you want to share with me and the audience? I mean, I would just say, you know, find what's special, unique, and different about you and your brand. Don't try and be an imitation of someone else because you're never going to be authentic trying to be another brand. You need to pick your lane and be the best you can be in your lane. And if you do that and you're authentically you, whatever that is, you know, could you imagine Barbara Streisand with a different nose or Cindy Crawford without her mole or Jay Leno with a different chin? That's what made them special and unique and great. Like, that's why you're connected to them. Everybody's got something that's a little bit off. Embrace it and run with it. And if you do that, that may be just the very thing that people remember that makes you unique, special, and different because you don't want to blend into the wallpaper. You know, everybody's a brand, whether they think of themselves as a brand or not, if you don't define your brand, the market will define you instead. So you should be very uh, thoughtful 
about how you want to be thought of and remembered and known. And everything you do, you should consistently reinforce that in every touch point, in all your messaging, online, offline, to give the best impression. You know, I just found the title of this podcast <laughs> and your upcoming book, Little Drum Rolls, and the title is Don't Blend In with the Background. Absolutely. I just think that that was so beautifully said that I just think that to me it's all about headlines and that is simply awesome. So Paige, this has been a fascinating conversation. You know, I laughed, I enjoyed it, I learned and also, you connected a lot of dots for me. And personally, I really, truly appreciate this conversation. Thank you for taking the time. Well, You're thank so you awesome. so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. I could talk forever, but I really appreciate it. And thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to this fascinating, incredible conversation with Paige Arnup-Fenn. And just remember, don't blend in with the background. Be you. Thank you all. And I'm really looking forward to another conversation with another leader from another walk of life soon. But this one will be tough to beat. Happy listening. You've been listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, top brand growth driver and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. To learn more, visit www.zenmango.com. Share this podcast with your friends and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.